Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Are you curious about locum tenums and how it might fit into your career? At locumstory.com, you can hear firsthand stories about the different reasons physicians choose locums and how it works for them. Visit locumstory.com to learn more. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am honored to have my next guest on the show. As a matter of fact, I was on his podcast recently. I've known of the guy for years and gotten to know him better and better and better and excited to talk about his life, his journey, what he's up to, his perspective on things. He has been in the real estate game for the last 10 years or so. He has gotten into rentals. He has gotten into land and just has an interesting story to share. Please help me welcome my friend, Jaron Barnes from the Land Maverick Society. Welcome, Jaron. Hey, man. It's an honor to be here. Really appreciate you, Dave. No, I appreciate you. It's, um, it, you've been kind of a, a rising star in the land game the last few years with working with Seth from RE Tipster, who's been on this podcast a couple of times. And now you've really broken off and you're doing your own thing. So we, we got to hear about all of that and what you've been doing and, and how you've gotten there. So fill us in, buddy. What's, uh, how, how did you get to where you're at right now? Whew. If I'm honest with you, man, I think I got here just by not quitting. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm not one to, I don't know, like sugarcoat things or sit, tell people what they want to hear. I just tell them how I honestly feel, you know, and um, looking hindsight, I'm definitely not a purebred entrepreneur by any sorts. I never wanted to work for myself or I never had that desire. And just, I think life had it in the cards for me to do what I do and to be one of these entrepreneurs. And it's been uh, an interesting journey because, you know, a lot of it was just not quitting and <laughs> just keep holding on until it figures itself out. And then it finally started to figure itself out. So uh, where'd you grow up? I spent half of my life in California in the San Francisco Bay area and half my life in my childhood or rather in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. So my dad moved to Atlanta when I was in fourth grade and I moved with him and then I went back and forth. And after looking hindsight, I totaled it up and I spent about an equal amount of time in both places, but a year or two here, a year or two back there, very different places too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Night, night and day in terms of, well, at least my impression, I've never lived in Georgia, but I grew up in Cali. So, you know, I, I kind of know what, what to expect there. They even use different languages. Like when I, in fourth grade, you know, in California, it's respectful to be like, okay, yeah, I totally understand that, right? To your teachers, not in the South. In the South, if I don't say yes, ma'am, yes, sir, they'd be like, what'd you say to me, boy? And I'm like, I just said yes. What, what's the issue? I don't understand. There is uh, one time my, I had my fourth grade teacher was uh, saying, Jared, pick up your book bag. 
your book bag. And I'm like, what the heck? I don't have a book bag. Like I thought a library bag, you know, like one that's made for books. He's talking about a backpack. And there's a bunch of other weird things that, that uh, I ran into. And on top of it, my dad was married to a Puerto Rican woman at the time for nine and a half years. So in our house, it was a Spanish speaking household. Me and my dad were the only white people. Her parents lived with us and even speak English. So it was like very multicultural coming up, a lot of layers. Wow. Did your dad do real estate at all? Did that inspire you, you know, to kind of do what you're doing now? Or what was that no, like growing man. up? Yeah. So my dad, he had, he pretty much did a lot in freight forwarding in one way or another. He was like a truck driver when I was really little. And he also was like a really good sales guy for DHX, I think is what it's called. Yeah. DHL, DHX, something like that. And so he, he was a sales guy and he had tried to start a couple of businesses before I was born, but really wasn't his jam. So yeah, he was a good dad, you know, did was right by me. And, uh, and it's just interesting. My family's a little broken though. You know, my parents split up when I was one and my dad was married a bunch of times. And like, I got like five brothers for like four different marriages and he has more marriages than that and like other things. But, you know, it's, it's interesting with my dad because, um, he really did step up to the plate and was a father for me the best that he could, where he was still trying to figure out life for all my other brothers. And so, you know, I'm incredibly grateful and indebted to him for stepping up to the plate because we have a pandemic of fatherless people, like fatherless generation among us. So, you know, I'm very fortunate to, you know, good, bad or ugly, he was there for me and I, I owe him a lot for it. That's awesome. And and going through all those transitions, I'm sure, you know, it was just, it was a little rocky probably just emotionally as a, as a kiddo. And I imagine financially too, for your dad, I mean, you go through different transitions. That's, that's kind of rough. Well, he took a job from California to Georgia. So he actually was pretty good. It, there are a lot of crazy things in my upbringing, like a lot of drugs. My mom was a hippie kind of that turned like uh, she was a labor delivery nurse, and so she's like a hippie turned yuppie is what she would say. <laughs> and my dad was like a retired police officer. And so like it was just very different on very, very different ends of the spectrum. Uh, but, you know, I would say we were upper middle class generally. So like I, even though there was a lot of weirdness and, you know, what do they call trauma or whatever, you know, it was, uh, it wasn't financial. Like money was always kind of there. So got it. Got it. Yeah. So did you go to college, you know, coming, coming out of high school or did you work or what was that like? So I, if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to have to talk about my faith just because I can't really get around it. So for those that are not Christian, I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to talk Christian language and you can translate this however you want. When I was 15 on August 25th, 2006, I had a really radical encounter with God and I was like very anti Christians. I was like on drugs and like in and out of group homes and stuff. And my dad actually in Georgia, like I'd just moved back from California and he forced me to go to this youth lock-in thing. And I was like kicking and screaming, but I went and I had a full on encounter with the Holy Spirit where I like couldn't talk for over an hour. Like all I could do was cry and just be like, he's real, he's real. And uh, kind of messed me up a little bit. And so I went to university for a year. I went to a Christian school called Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee did my freshman year there, but then I dropped out to pursue ministry. So my first stake in life was being a superintendent over a homeless shelter in Great Bend, Kansas. And it was really crazy because I was like 19 years old telling them like 40 year old men to like brush their teeth and show up to court and stuff. It was really weird. 
So that was kind of, I even met my wife on a mission trip actually during that season uh, in the UK. And like, yeah, I felt like the Lord told me she was my wife. We got married two and a half months later before she met me. Like she had like these things called like uh, prophets or whatever from Bethel church that's uh, prophesy over her. Like, I don't know what you're doing in this country. You're called to United States. You're going to be in California, this, that, and the other. And she's just like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I have him on scholarship with the Kazakhstani government because my wife's from Kazakhstan. And sure enough, like a month before her like final project at university, we met and got married. And here she is. <laughs> and we lived in California and all that. Yeah. I think the best time to get married, if, if you're someone that ends up being successful, is when you're broke and you don't, you don't have much going on, right? Because yeah. there, there's, no, there's no question that the person loved and loves you for you at, <laughs> at that time. And it's not about the money and the material stuff. So, Yeah, she's always, she actually, she's four years older, like three and a half years older or something. So she actually graduated from, on a full ride scholarship from our government as a mechanical engineer. And she's like super smart and like has always had a lot of money. And like, she's always been the kind of the driver, the driving force in her family. My wife really inspires me. I could talk about my wife the entire podcast. She's pretty amazing. She literally just one day had an epiphany and she's like, I want to go to America and learn English. Who has money to help me get to America? Congress people have money. And so she literally at 17 years old got on a bus. She's a girl from a village. Like she's, this is crazy stuff. But she went there, literally stood before the, like the equivalents of congressmen in Kazakhstan and was like, I want to go to America and blah, 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 blah. And she literally convinced them to start pulling out money out of her pocket live. Said, we can't like officially give you stuff, but here's all my money. And like they, they gathered a bunch of, um, you know, like, uh, you know, everybody just chipped in. And she's like, they said to her, when you're, when you arrive and, and you get up there high and high in the sky, don't forget us little people. You know, these are congressmen telling her this stuff. And like, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. She's pretty phenomenal. I probably should get into like transition to where we start talking about real estate. So I think too, I mean, a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are physicians, they're coming from all over the world in many cases. And that immigrant mindset, I think is something that those of us born and raised in the US, right? That that hustle bug. Now, of course, there's exceptions to that all over the place. But I just admire someone like your wife and many of the physicians listening to this podcast in terms of leaving everything, in many cases, supporting family overseas and just hustling their butts off to get to where they want to get to. It's awesome. I really think that's what makes America great. Like, I really think that's the core aspect. It's all for me, the American dream is all tied to immigration and like being able to come here with nothing in your pocket and like nothing but a dream and through hard work and determination you make a life for yourself like it's actually pretty hard to do that in a lot of countries but here you know at least right now hopefully we don't lose it but at least right now that's the that's what makes us that's our our uh, you know unique selling proposition that's our sweet our secret sauce i think is what makes us special so you were in ministry and got kind of started in that aspect. And then you made a shift at some point. What what happened? Yeah, I got married and I found out that there's this these pesky things in life called bills. <laughs> and uh, and as a husband, I needed to like work. And so, you know, it, it was a big struggle actually for a long time. I, I've always dealt with this like tug where I've always wanted to be in full-time ministry, 
I wanted to be a missionary. Like I went to one year of university and I studied intercultural studies so that I could like, which was the missionary major at the school. And it's funny because like, you know, sometimes when you have to come to like a walk with God and understanding that it's not about you and it's not about what you want, but it's about what he wants. Like you lay your life down to pick up his, you know, he had different plans for me. And I think he's really called me to this whole real estate entrepreneurship space. And maybe I am still kind of a missionary behind the scenes, like covert, you know, but I'm just like, I'm called to a very different world. And it's, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, tug of war, you know, with with kind of purpose and calling and all that stuff, especially in my 20s. But it seems to have solidified itself and figured itself out. You know, we, uh, I had friends that were actually in ministry and were kind of some pretty big influences in my life run into the same thing. They were tired of living off of support. And so they started looking into business books. And the very first book I ever read was called The Millionaire Messenger by Brendan Bouchard. And it was kind of like what a lot of real estate investors equate to rich dad, poor dad. They're like, aha, kind of pivotal book moment. And that's what it was for me. I realized, oh, I can actually like not work for people, but I could just like build systems that make money. And so that really got me started on the whole pursuit of, of business. I started really looking into blogging and creating content. I came across a guy named Pat Flynn at the Smart Passive Income blog, and he was very inspirational for me. I ended up, long story short, one way or another, uh, through those very friends who kind of introduced me to that book and you know entrepreneurship, they invested their entire life savings into a guru house flipping course. Uh, I'll keep it nameless because it wasn't very uh, fruitful, I'll say, in the San Francisco Bay Area. The, the strategies probably would be good for like Kansas or Ohio or Indiana, but for the San Francisco Bay Area in 2010, 2011, it was pretty, pretty rough. So they ended up pursuing full-time real estate and I had convinced a guy to hire me even though I didn't have a college degree in insurance and I was there 30 days, I was the number one sales guy for the month. But then I like, I realized, you know what? I want to go do real estate. So I just like quit and then like went and started door knocking that day. And I was working for a very unethical fix and flipper in the San Francisco Bay area that was doing some very shady things that I, at the time, just out of ignorance, didn't know that what he was doing, what he would do is he would get a property that was facing foreclosure, do a a phantom bankruptcy to stop the foreclosure process. And then he would get it into contract under a short sale. And then he would go in and like, like destroy the property, but like only surface level stuff. So it was pretty easy to repair so that when a, 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 a broker would come and give an opinion of value, it would be all skewed because you'd be like, oh, this place is terrible and, you know, it's all, you know, disarrayed or whatever. So he was like straight up manipulating the the appraisal process and it was not good. But I was very good at what I did. We had a very sophisticated door knocking system and I got 10 properties under contract in six months. And while I was doing that, I started a blog about bigger pockets. If you guys have heard of bigger pockets and I got on Josh Dorkins and Brandon Turner's radar because they came out to do a presentation for Google and I connected them with the guys that run the bigger pockets meetups in the Bay Area. And then Josh, this was back in the day when it was just Josh and Brandon and a couple of developers. 
and they were looking to grow their team, but they wanted to grow the team in Denver. Didn't want more remote employees per se. Hey man, I'm willing to step in and help out as much as I can. But, you know, it was kind of agreed that it was going to be temporary because I wasn't trying to move to Denver and they weren't trying to have another remote employee outside of Brandon Turner. So that was a big exposure to land. I've kind of always been at this intersection of like content and real estate. And it's funny that I have a career there because I, I didn't think that I was going to be able to have a career there. But yeah, from the working at Bigger Pockets, I ended up moving from California to Indianapolis because my best friend was out there and life was greener on the other side. Things are very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and if I wanted to actually have a house someday, I was like, you know, I should probably get out of the Bay Area. So I ended up moving to Indianapolis and I ended, felt like I was at a crossroads between content and real estate. So I ended up getting my real estate license and through Bigger Pockets, connected with a house wholesaler named Brett Snodgrass, who ended up hiring me to do content for him. So I spent half of my time at Simple Wholesaling with him doing content stuff, helped him launch a podcast, helped him write eBooks and all kind of stuff, and then shift uh, shifted over to the deal side. And I was a, a disposition manager. So it was my responsibility to uh, sell 25 to 35 properties a month by the time I was heading out, out the door at that opportunity. We grew it. We, I helped grow it from, um, you know, like about eight to 12 properties a month to 25 to 35. So I learned a lot about a lot of things in real estate. <laughs> well, what I want to point out about your journey that I want everyone to pick up on was it wasn't like you just started flipping houses yourself a lot, right? Number one, capital, I'm sure was a problem at the time, but that could have been possibly solved, you know, if you really wanted to. But instead what you did is you went through a whole mentorship process, right? Of being around people with knowledge. You went and interned or, or worked for the bigger pockets guys. You did some experience yourself of, of cold calling. You went now to somebody else and helped out with a whole bunch of different aspects of the business. It wasn't just one thing you were doing. You kept learning the full 360 of everything that happens, except you just weren't running the business itself is what I'm reading into it. Yeah, man. It's true. And I actually think that that's probably the most high leveraged way to get started in real estate or in anything that you want to learn. Instead of me paying somebody to learn real estate, I got paid to learn real estate. And yeah, I had to like, you know, help build somebody else's vision. But again, like I didn't really care. I just, you know, I, I just wanted to really just be faithful to what God told me to do. And I, especially with Brett Snodgrass, I thought that I was going to be his right-hand man and working for Simple Wholesaling for the next 10 plus years of my life. So I was like really set there and happy. And yeah, I wanted to utilize my skill set to make more money and deploy you know, what I knew. So I ended up starting getting into land while I was there and partnered on my first couple of deals with Brett Snodgrass interviewed Seth Williams and Mark Podowski on, on the Simple Wholesaling podcast. And then uh, one thing led to another. And there was kind of some shifts and, and things that changed at Simple Wholesaling. And it was just kind of time for me to go. And so I transitioned into land full time. And then I was about three, four months in. And uh, I was uh, actually in a mastermind group with Seth Williams. And he ended up having an epiphany because I was like, hey, man, I love the land business, but cash flow is an issue, you know? And I was complaining about it. He's like, well, hey, I could like have you come work for our tipster. You have a very unique skill set where you actually know content and you know land. And so 
I, I joined the our Tipster team for about three and a half years. And Seth is another one of those guys that I point to in my life. Uh, I would not be who I am without him. There's like no question. Like he made a mark. He, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, mentored me, fathered me, you know, just, you know, was uh, an incredible influence in my life. And I have nothing but great things to say to him and nothing but gratitude. Him and me are still really good friends today. I was just talking to him actually last Friday. Well, I think, you know, I've seen in people who are successful in many aspects, not just land, but in financial planning or real estate or whatever, you know, it's that hunger that puts fire in the belly, right? Like I am going to figure this thing out. And you and I have, have a common friend, one of your, your students or former students, not sure, Sean Callahan, that he came to me and he was willing to work for me for free. And I said, sure, why not? I'll take free help, right? And part of that was he got coached for free. He didn't have to pay tens of thousands of dollars for the program. And I'm not saying to everyone, hey, come and be my intern, but it was an incredibly efficient way. That was a win-win situation for both of us, for him to get exposure, see how it's done practically at the scale and the volume that I was. And uh, I'm not sure if, if you were the one that encouraged him to do that or if he just came up that was on his own, but that's a wonderful way, you know, just to get experience, offer to work for someone for free. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic move. And everybody in the real estate world always asks, like, how do I find a mentor? That's a pretty easy way to find a mentor. Just be willing to like serve and just have a servant's heart and go underneath somebody else's vision and help lift it up. You know, like come underneath them and help push what they're trying to do forward. And you're going to go far. And now for a quick commercial break. Everyone has a story. Different needs, wants, and goals and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation, your story, locum tenums should be part of the conversation. How do you find out if locums can be a good option for you? Well, start your research, my friends, by visiting an online, unbiased educational resource like locumstory.com. Now's the perfect time to explore locums opportunities and see how it may fit into your career. The variety of options might even surprise you. At locumstory.com, you can find firsthand stories about the different reasons why physicians choose locums and the ins and outs of how locum tenants works. Get a comprehensive review of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. And now back to the show. So you you were you got into the land stuff. So you have exposure, obviously, to multifamily. You've had exposure to storage over the years. You've had exposure to land. Um, which of those are you pursuing or have you pursued? And I, obviously you're doing land stuff, so that's part of it. But give us for you your perspective on why land or or do you plan on doing multiple streams and multiple kinds of real estate? How, how do you think about that whole thing? Yeah, so I think that flipping vacant land is the best. I'm a big 80-20 guy, so I try not to say that buzzword over and over again, but in my head, like, Land is the most 80-20 active real estate model in existence. But 
key point. Thank you for not saying passive, by the way. Yeah, it's not passive. It's it's (laughs) transactional. So it's similar to being a real estate agent or being a house flipper or being a wholesaler. You always have to have your foot on the gas pedal in order to make money. Whereas a passive investment model in real estate is where you, through either outsourcing to through a property manager or through some other means, you're getting paid without doing any work. You can take your foot off the gas pedal and it doesn't change anything. So eventually I, I will have to take the money that I'm making and land and park it somewhere in a passive model. I like real I like buy and hold real estate. I really think that there's some opportunity in kind of the commercial multifamily space, but on the smaller side. So like five to say 50 units. I think that there is that's an underlooked space. And there's still opportunities for like seller financing and really being able to find, you know, a diamond in the rough. I also really like experience-based real estate. So like anything that would be like a resort or glamping, Airbnb. Those type of things I'm very interested in. Right now, I don't have the bandwidth to put my attention there, but it's inevitable that, especially with the glamping, because I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Rob Belt, but he's a YouTuber guy. That's his YouTube name, Rob Belt. He actually runs, uh, I think the current he's the current host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. He is very interesting to me because 80%, 90% of his skill set is exactly the same as us as land flippers. Only he gets a property that might have a cabin on it on 50 acres that would qualify for conventional bank financing. And then he fin- finances it, holds it, and then builds like a tiny house village that he can put up on Hip Camp or Airbnb. And I really like that. There's also other cool experiences you can do, like bell tents. They cost three grand a month. Oh, sorry, they cost three grand to like set up. And if you're in a in an area that has ample demand, according to him, again, this is all theory at, my, at this stage because I haven't actually done it, but he said that you should be able to make $3,000 a month per bell tent. So you can get like a five-acre property, put up 10 tents and like, you know, they're normally from a zoning standpoint, you got to be careful, but from a zoning standpoint, because it's not a fixed structure, you can normally get away with it and you can be sitting there cash flowing on, on very, very little investment on the front end. So I'm really into that. I mean, I would love to like be the guy that, you know, co-owns a, a hotel or resort in Belize or something, you know, that kind of stuff's very intriguing to me, but bandwidth probably for the next 10 years, it's all landmark society for me. (laughs) Mm. Well, I think what you're saying is kind of similar to my experience in that with land, there's great cash flow and there's great capital or rather much, much lower capital needs in land. So, and the rates of return relative to many other asset classes are a lot higher. On the other hand, it's it's horribly tax inefficient, both in terms of capital requirements, as well as everything is ordinary income. There's no, there's no long term, when you're flipping, there's no long term capital gain type opportunities, um, nor depreciation or things like that, that can help with much with the kind of thing you're talking about long term, buy and hold and adjust kind of stuff. I know Seth is really into self storage. I thought it was interesting. You didn't mention that at all. Like what, why not storage for you? I'm, I'm personally very curious into looking into that myself. Yeah, I like it as a model, but I feel I looked into it. I did a big research project actually at Ari Tips there, all about it. And I 
think that there's still tons of opportunity, but it's very, very popular right now. And I think the golden years were probably about five to seven years ago. The key that what you're capitalizing there is an inefficient market. The same thing with land. And there's other asset classes that also are pretty inefficient that have less eyeballs. So, I mean, I would, as opposed to going to self-storage, I would look at like RV parks or even mobile home parks as wild, wild west as it is. You can buy stuff at four grand and sell it for 40 grand. Like it's pretty crazy. Whereas things, the more popular I feel like storage gets, the the like harder it is to get like a slamming dunk deal. And I'm a little spoiled with land because you know we buy at 50 cents on the dollar. Like, you know, it's it's pretty hard to to beat what we got going on. Well, it, it'll be interesting. I, I believe with interest rates having gotten much higher than they were, that they're in the commercial real estate space in general, not just self-storage, but a lot of different kinds of commercial real estate. There's a lot of pain that's going to be happening because most of those things are on arms, adjustable rate mortgages. And so they had a 2% or 3% rate, but after five or 10 years, that puppy is going to likely jump up significantly, right? So if people locked in rates in 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, we could be looking at as soon as next year or the year after, if interest rates stay elevated, that all of a sudden people might have to start fire sailing assets. At least that's my, that's my take on it. And I, I hope to ride some kind of downturn in the market. They've been saying for uh, over a decade now that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And I think we're here, but it, it is, we're kind of in that weird transition phase right now. That's a, a little annoying, but I, I'm with you. And I, I'm i going to keep my eyes and ears up, especially with seller finance stuff. Subject two can also be a really cool strategy. I don't know if this is true or not. I haven't verified it, but word on the street is that there are certain investment groups that will actually ensure the if the, if the mortgage company calls a note due. So Ajay Sharma, our mutual friend, he actually pointed me in the direction of one that claims to do that in Texas. So we'll see. Like if I had more margin, I would probably like do a direct mail campaign specifically for properties that have high equity or look like to be underwater because that could be, you know, a pretty cool strategy. It, it'll be interesting to see see how it all turns out and. My, my experience so far, you know, certainly in land in the time you started in what, like including the time with Brett Snodgrass, 2016, 17, 17. So we started around the same time really uh, for all intents and purposes. So it's, we went through this incredible time where at least for me, 2017, 2019, things were kind of stale where, you know, you might buy something, it might take a while to sell it it might take four five, six months. And it was a lot of work to try and sell something. And then COVID hit us and it was like, oh my gosh, everything that I had sold, you know, it's like you couldn't buy stuff quick enough. And then prices started raising. Uh, there was more competition in the land space. Um, certainly there's more people teaching it than ever that that uh, are coming out of the woodwork that have been doing it three, four, five, six, seven years like us to to this point now it feels like it's getting back to what it was when we first started. Prices are still higher, much, much higher than they were, but it's 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 harder to acquire and it's harder to sell. At least that's my take. 
you know, just nationwide and all the stuff that, that I'm doing. What do you think? What's your impression? Yeah, man, I think it depends on how you approach the business. I think if you can get really good at working with local land specialized agents and you, that's like a core skill set of your arsenal of your like tool belt. I think you can avoid a lot of that because when you have a land specialized agent who has an active buyers list, who's aggressive there, who has people that are aggressively looking for land, we move property pretty quick, you know, but we, my wife and I got to give credit where credit's due. She has like a feeler, like I've never seen in ever before. Like she, she just gets like these little hunches about like due diligence issues or about valuations. And she just, her batting average is pretty crazy. Like she just like from a due diligence standpoint, she's yet to be wrong. And it's, you know, it's pretty phenomenal. So, you know, I, I do think we have a, a pretty, my wife is a, a, like the equivalent of probably like five people, 10 people or something. But yeah, you know, I think all in all, just having the right approach seems to be a good move. I mean, there's other things involved too. Like I think that there's a lot of people pulling from first American title data, either via price or through data tree. And so I think that creates an artificial saturation. There's other people that are, you know, tapping into other marketing channels. You know, cold calling is on the fringes. Texting is kind of uh, kind of the next standard, I think, next to mail now. But there's a lot of other ways to get deals. And so, you know, I think it's just a matter of rolling up your sleeves and figuring it out. But it's tough. Like, sure, everybody – like, we actually talked about this on your show – a lot of people, we look back at our glory days, like, you know, the glory days were here, the glory days were there, or back in 2008, or, you know, what have you, what have you. I think the best time to get started in real estate was, you know, 20 years ago. But the next best time is to get started now. And so whether you, every market's going to have a certain amount of challenges, every, you know, season in life is going to come with its own mixed bag. But if you can just figure it out and you just get to work, you know, you'll be successful. Love it. Love it. So knowing what you know, the, the, those of us listening to this podcast right now, many of us are, are busy physicians and we just don't have a lot of bandwidth of time, but we're interested in this concept. We want to pursue it, but we're not sure what the most time efficient way is to go about that. Like, what are your thoughts on someone in this situation where they're already working 50 hours a week, maybe even 60 hours a week, but they want diverse income streams, they want to be able to get into land? What, what would you suggest to them? I honestly think being a private money lender is perfect for that model. And there's a lot of leverage to, I mean, it's even going back to your original question about what I would do potentially as like a passive income model being a private money lender is pretty passive. As long as you can get a good operator that you fund their deals for, whether it's land or whether it's a wholesaler or house flipper, whatever it is, a developer, just being able to be the guy that wires money back and forth, it's pretty high leverage. You know, Drew Haney is our exclusive funder at Land Maverick Society and Fry by Land. And he, he has a lot going on, but in terms of like the day-to-day -day operations, like all he does is wire money and make sure that money is there. Like he works with backup funders and other things, but yeah, like it, that he makes 50% of our profit 
and you know we we do a lot of the heavy lifting walk us through that you know if someone's interested in this this space you know what do they need to know about hard money lending what should they be thinking about they may even be familiar with that term what does that mean what's that all about yeah so to clarify um, I would encourage people in your audience to consider being a private money lender as opposed to hard money lender because hard money lenders are like kind of they have a lot more red tape that they have to deal with. They lend like they're more of like an official like like uh, I don't know if they have to get I think they have to get an actual like mortgage originator's license at least in some states, but they are a little bit different because there's a lot more involved there. But for private money, you just have to develop your network enough to find somebody that is trustworthy and has a track record and is doing deals and is growing. And then you can just kind of ride their coattails and kind of leverage their you know, effort in the day-to-day while you're doing your, your thing as a doctor and you just wire money. The big kicker though is you got to meet somebody who you can trust and you got to be, I, I would encourage people to dip their toe before they jump in with both feet because there are a lot of sharks out there and there are a lot of people that have great sales skills and can make themselves come across as much more legitimate than they are. And so you got to really make sure that you're dealing with people that you can trust and run with for the long haul. But you find a Brett Snodgrass, you find a Seth Williams, you find a Dave Dennison or Jaron Barnes, and you're set. Just And there's a bunch of operators, you know, like a lot of land guys or a lot of you know, wholesalers or house flippers who are great people, but they just lack the capital. So if you could come alongside them and then supercharge their operation by flooding it with cash, I mean, it's huge. And in, at least in land, it's pretty common to, you know, make 50, 60% of the profit of the deal. So what, what should they be asking in order to know this person versus that person and who to trust? So I think the biggest thing, Honestly, is it, it's getting in the trenches with people. It's You can ask people on the front end all the right questions in the world, but until you actually get into a foxhole, metaphorically, and you see people in the grind and you see them at their worst and see how they act and see them at their best and see how they act and all that, you, you just don't know. And me and Drew actually talked about this the other day who's our, our co-host of the Land Maverick Society podcast. And, you know, again, he's our exclusive funder for Land Maverick Society and our own land business. And him and me, you know, there was, when we first started talking, I was like, how do I know I can trust you? And he's like, you don't. <laughs> like, there's no way for you to know. We just have to walk together and see if I burn you. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so like, it, you know, I, I do think that that's probably number one. Beyond that though, and I want to be careful with this because there are hidden opportunities with up and comers that if you gave your gave it a shot you would have a you get to ride a bigger wave more risk more reward right so i would you know say this with caution but generally it's safer to work with people who already have an existing operation like they're they're flipping a certain amount of deals or they're they have a certain reputation locally or what have you because you can, you know, kind of vicariously through what other people are saying or what they feel about this person, you can ride those coattails, right? But I, again, I would almost encourage people to like negotiate a higher split in their favor in, in terms of like, say that like you're a doctor 
you know, say you come up with some young buck that is hungry and aggressive and sure, maybe you need to like mentor them a little bit or like, you know, put, put some parameters around them or whatever. But if you can provide that for them, it's totally justifiable for you to have a 70, 30 split, at least in land or a 60, 40 split, you know, especially if you're in a spot where you can front like the cost of mailers or marketing, there's a lot that you can gain from working with people who are more inexperienced, but again, there's more risk. And so I would always do it in a way where maybe uh, I think six months to a year before you really go, you know, jump in with both feet in terms of a quote unquote partnership or, or what have you is a good kind of threshold. Just date a little bit before you get married. Totally. No, I, I totally agree with that. I think the other things I would be thinking about doing if I were in a doctor's shoes, I'd probably do a background check on somebody just to make sure that there's like no criminal record or anything like that. Right. You know, like certainly spending time with the person is, is important if you possibly can. Number three, I think too, is just get educated yourself. You know, the, the main thing I see the mistake a lot of people making is they just want to do something like this, but they don't want to spend time on getting educated. Well, you have to, because you need to know the difference between legal and physical access. You need to know, you know, what, what a lien is and how to see if there's back taxes on a property. Like you need to know this stuff. So that way, if anyone brings you a deal, you can do some due diligence yourself. Not that you need to spend hours on it, but you can spend 10 or 15 minutes looking it over to make sure that's a place you want to put your capital. You know what I mean? I a thousand percent agree. I think a background check would be a really smart move. And spending time in somebody's third place environment is a very interesting insight into who they are. Like when they're trying to, like, especially if you have money to bring to the table, they might be trying to put their best foot forward and try to like present themselves in the best possible light. But if you can get around them in like a party environment, maybe get a couple drinks in them. If you can <laughs> see, uh, you know, how they respond to waitresses and waiters. If you can see how they interact with their family and what their family dynamic looks like, those are really good indicators as to who they are as, as a person. And, you know, if they're super nice to you, but they act super egotistical or, you know, like have their nose up in the air when it comes to people at the gas station or, you know, what have you, or if there's, you know, they, they get a few drinks in them and then they start talking trash about this, that, or the other or whatever, like you just got to get people in an environment that is not like the, interview i'm trying to present you know myself in a way where i can convince you to spend money with me you know if you can like build relations drew is phenomenal at that he's really good at people getting people to get their guard down yeah he is he's he's phenomenal at, at getting to know people and spending time with them well jaren we're running out of time with uh, the podcast today so i'd love for you if, if people want to find you. I know you do coaching in this space. I think you have your own course coming out here pretty soon. Where can people find you, talk to you if they want to talk about any of this real estate stuff for land in particular? Yeah, man. Land Maverick Society across all socials, landmavericks.com. In a nutshell, the Land Maverick Society is an online community that provides everything that's needed to get started in the land business and then scale to a 100K month model. And I'm very weird than most coaches because I actually take you by the hand and I'm actually walking you through every step of the process. I give out my personal cell phone number to everybody. We call back seller leads together. We do everything 
from start to finish, reach out to land specialized agents, run due diligence together. We fund deals. Like it's, it's a business in a box, as they say. And so what's coming out in the near future is actually something called the Land Maverick Academy, which is just kind of an additional add-on to what we're doing. But we're never going to stop you know, one-on-one coaching sessions and unlimited. So like there's many times throughout the week I meet with the same person two or three times because I want you guys to get what you need. So that's kind of what we do, who we are. And I would say my, my experience, I've done some coaching with you and my experience is, you know, it, it was the best value of any program I've seen. There's plenty of them trying to sell for 30K or 50K even to do one-on-one coaching, you know, and, and uh, I think you get to give a great value. So I'd encourage anybody to uh, check you out. All right, Jaron, any other any closing thoughts you want to leave us with as we, we wrap this up? I just appreciate you, sir. You're a man of integrity and I can tell. You know, I, I've uh, walked along with you enough to really kind of get a glimpse of kind of who you are and the character that you have and you're a good man. So I really appreciate it. It's been an honor. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you. All right, everyone. That wraps up another episode today of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. As always, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes and live in the red lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now, I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30 minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction which we're not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an additional insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. 
you should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.